Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. Today is a by-the-book episode, a conversation with Christopher Wright. And I could not be more excited for the podcast episode that you are about to listen to. Um, Christopher J.H. Wright is probably the author whose books have most profoundly shaped my understanding of the Old Testament. Um, This goes back probably 10 years when I first picked up his Old Testament ethics for the people of God, followed shortly thereafter by his book, The Mission of God. Um, I talked with Chris about both of these books briefly on the podcast because I wanted the chance to remember that so much of that is foundational to even understanding the book that we're going to talk about today on the show. And the book that I've pulled out is one that's really new for Christopher Wright. He is a commentator. He has several commentaries on books of the Old Testament. Um, He has written several books. Um, The two big ones then are the Old Testament Ethics for the People of God and the Mission of God. But this one is more of a popular level book. It brings in much of his scholarship from some of his bigger uh, works, but it brings it down into a synthesized form 170, 180 page book, but his book, Here Are Your Gods, Faithful Discipleship in Idolatrous Times, was just released um, uh, September 29th of this year. And so I wanted the chance to help Chris with some promotion as well as recognize what I sensed were some building blocks of things he's written before that he did, in fact, verify that his publisher had encouraged him to take some of that work that he has written years ago and to synthesize it for a new listening audience. And so today, I'm really hopeful, I'm hoping rather that you will be just encouraged um, by his book. I I could not recommend it highly enough. I am going to begin reading it for a second time just to go back through and to let some of these ideas solidify. But Chris is is an incredibly bright thinker and will give you and me both the tools we need to understand how do we faithfully read the Old Testament, uh, uh, an Old Testament that sometimes feels disconnected from our own world, um, especially when we talk about idolatry. And, and I've spoken a lot about idolatry on this podcast, so hopefully none of you regular listeners will be too awfully surprised by any of the things he says, although he is so succinct and so clear in the way he communicates these realities But what is really powerful about Chris's book is how he takes that rich, rich Old Testament foundation um, and how he brings it into the modern time and how he shows us that as people, as citizens of a nation, we are no different than Israel of old. And I do remember growing up hearing a lot of the time, well, all those Israelites, I just can't believe that they would do things like that. And man, if I was there, I wouldn't have done it. No, actually, we would because we are doing it. And so what Christopher Wright does is he brings a perspective right into modern day politics, right into ideologies, structures, systems, beliefs, ways of viewing the world, ways of using God and using God's name to justify things that actually are anti-God as he's revealed himself in the person of Jesus. And writing as he does from London, he's not an American citizen and has never lived here. So it's interesting to listen to an outside perspective, not not fully outside, he's still in the West, um, but to listen to an outside perspective as he's commenting on political realities, because most of our conversations about politics tend to exist from people within the system who very well may have a vested interest in one side or the other winning the political debate, but not Chris Wright. And he has been critiqued about this um, online, and I asked him about this critique, giving him a chance to respond uh, about how people would critique his work or what they would accuse him of. And I was very thankful just to be able to listen to his responses. And so this is one for me in terms of a by the book. It's a highlight for me being able to talk with the one person who has influenced me the most, and I'm just tremendously grateful for him. So I offer to you the conversation I have with Chris Wright about his book, Here Are Your Gods. I'm sure you're going to enjoy it and feel free to pass this along to a friend who I also think would be encouraged by it. Welcome back, Unbinding the Bible listeners. Today we have another By the Book episode, a conversation with Chris Wright. 
and Chris was born in Belfast, Northern Ireland in 1947. He attended university in Cambridge and completed his doctorate in Old Testament economic ethics from Cambridge as well. In 2001, he was appointed International Ministries Director of the Langham Partnership, a group of ministries originally founded by John Stott and committed to strengthening the church in the majority world by providing resources for training evangelical theological educators. Chris has written numerous books, including The Mission of God, How to Preach and Teach the Old Testament for All It's Worth, and Old Testament Ethics for the People of God, as well as commentaries on the books of Deuteronomy, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, and one on Exodus that's to be released this coming February. Chris and his wife Liz have four adult children that belong to All Souls Church, Langham Place, London, where Chris enjoys preaching from time to time as a member of the staff team. And he enjoys running, birding, and watching rugby, and has a passion for bringing to life the relevance of the Old Testament for Christian mission and ethics. And that's primarily why I've invited Chris to be on the podcast today, but I just wanted to uh, to bring him on. Chris, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Joshua. It's good to be with you. Yeah. Um, I uh, first came across some books of yours, Chris, uh, several years ago, Old Testament Ethics for the People of God, I think was the very first one I read, and The Mission of God shortly thereafter. And um, your Old Testament Ethics for the People of God, I think to this point, is probably my favorite book of any sort on hermeneutics, on biblical interpretation, anything of that sort. I've just fell in love with that for well over 10 years, and it shaped quite a bit of the way I understand the Old Testament. And um, anyway, I just wanted to thank you for your powerful influence in my own life. And um, Well, thank you, Joshua. I mean, that's, that's very kind of you to say so. Uh, it, it, you've read my two big books, <laughs> that one and The Mission of God are the two real heavyweights. Uh, That's but right. the Old Testament ethics one, as you said, that was my area of, uh, of doctoral study way, way back uh, in the 1970s, looking at the economics and the ethics and of, the, of the Old Testament of Israel. And, uh, and so that's in many ways been where I started out. So it's the kind of field that I knew at that time and have tried to keep in touch with. And um, yeah, and, and what I was trying to do in that book was fairly intuitive, really. It was just trying to help people to say, well, how can we actually use the Old Testament uh, in a way that is, um, you know, responsible uh, and meaningful and, and not extreme one way or another uh, and and of value to Christians who believe the Bible. Yeah, well, that's exactly how it came across. And so I would say you you succeeded in that goal and um, very thankful. I, I had grown up in a context, very faithful, Bible-believing church, but tended to moralize the Old Testament, just a, a principle here, a principle there, but never being able to look at it so holistically, maybe the way the way you have. Um, yeah, and thanks. so I, my hunch is that your newest book, um, Here Are Your Gods, Faithful Discipleship in Idolatrous Times, which was just released several weeks ago. Um, that's really what I'd like to kind of focus our time on. But my hunch is, Chris, that that much of your work through Old Testament ethics for the people of God and the mission of God both formed a lot of the the foundation um, for how you were able to write maybe more of a popular level um, book. This one's only about 170 pages. Um, but but what I would like to do, I'd love to just hear a little bit of maybe your story toward writing the book, maybe those the relationship between the two that you see, um, just what what led you to the to the writing of, of this particular book. Yeah, thanks, Joshua. Um, two things, I think. One is that uh, I had actually included a section in the Mission of God book on uh, an analysis of what the, the way in which the Old Testament particularly deals with the issue of idolatry. Uh, you know, what are the idols and how do we recognize them and why do people create idols? And there's a lot of uh, in the Old Testament about that, which I think gets overlooked you know, all we think is, well, idols, yeah, bad, and then we just carry on. And, and so a number of people had said to me that those, um, the particular chapter in the mission of God which dealt with that was worthy of, in a sense, being uh, extracted out of the book and maybe published on its own in relation to uh, the kind of idols of modern times. And, of course, there are a number of other Christian authors who've written about contemporary idolatry, so I'm not the only one by any means, but... Um, 
So that was the first thing was the feeling that maybe that uh, that idea of idolatry as a missional issue and the fact that um, gods are not just something in the ancient world or indeed something in other parts of our world, you know, where other religions are, but are very much found among the people of God. And the other side was that, yes, as you say, my book, Old Testament Ethics for the People of God, works on the assumption that, uh, based on what Paul says in uh, you know, one in, in two Timothy three sixteen, where he says that all Scripture is not only given by God, you know, breathed out by God, but is also useful and profitable for training and righteousness and all of that. So my assumption has always been that what the Old Testament teaches does have relevance today. It, it has a a paradigmatic or an exemplary power that what God sought to do in Israel and through Israel. Uh, was not just to be relegated to ancient history, but is actually revealing to us things and providing us with insights and analyses uh, that have ethical relevance today. And so looking at contemporary worlds, particularly in Western civilization, it did seem to me that there is a lot that we can learn from the way uh, the world of Israel went from the period of judges right on through the monarchy and through the international era and the politics and economics of that time um, that is relevant, that speaks to us and says, look, this is the way things go when people choose to worship that which is not God, uh, i.e. the idols. Uh, And so I I felt that there was a need to highlight that and to say this is relevant. And then more positively, at the, in, the, in the third section of the book, to ask the question, well, that's all very well, but how should we then live? What does it mean to be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ? The Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus is Lord. What does it mean to be disciples of the one who truly is God uh, in a world that is uh, so riddled with other idols? Uh, and so that's what the third part of the book is all about. Yeah, and I definitely will make a link to our for our listeners to find your book um, and to to get it for themselves because there's no way in about a 45 minute conversation we're really gonna be able to do um, justice to the whole thing. But yeah, it's interesting. I distinctly remembered your chapter in the Mission of God on idols, um, probably as powerfully as any of the chapters. And it's been at least 10 years since I've read that book. Oh, um, yeah. And so it was it was neat going back and hearing you mention that in your book, um, but just to sort of repackage it. So, Chris, let's let's assume we've got some listeners here who've never read anything that you've written. So we're talking about idolatry. I'm sure maybe people have in mind the, the golden calf image, which is probably the most famous one from the Old Testament. But could you could you sort of uh, summarize, I guess, or just how would you present initially the idea of just what you know what are the gods which is what your chapter two was and and how do you discern them like how are we taking the biblical language and thinking about these things that we might say aren't real and yet to those who worship them they they are real so can can you talk about that for just a little bit yeah good i mean the, the title of the book here are your gods in quotation marks is, of course, taken from that episode that you just referred to, the golden calf. Uh, That's the first time it occurs when Aaron says to the people of Israel, after they've uh, created that golden calf, when Moses was up the mountain receiving the instructions for the tabernacle, and he says to them, here are your gods who brought you up out of Egypt. Uh, It's an obvious attempt, on the one hand, to connect this idol that they've created somehow or other with the God that they just heard speaking to them at Mount Sinai and giving the Ten Commandments and so on, and who had just rescued them out of Egypt. So it is effectively a form of syncretism. They're they're trying, as it were, to hold on to some semblance of this being Yahweh, the God who had redeemed them, and yet it clearly isn't. It's, it's, a, it's a God of their own manufacture. They, they've created this God in order somehow to lead them forward. And and so there's a there's a certain disconnect here between what they want to think they're doing, which is still worshiping God, and what they're actually doing, which is creating idols. And 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 that's very much the sort of syncretism that we see in the church also, where people are, are want to think that they go on worshiping God. You know, he's there on the Sunday, he's there in church, uh, he's there on Sundays. Uh, in God we trust, he's the God who's going to bless us, etc., etc. And yet, in reality, we go after the gods of the people around us. We just um, almost unconsciously accept the uh, the ambient culture in which we are. The other place, of course, where that phrase occurs, here are your gods, O Israel, it's a double quote, 
comes later on uh, in the story of Israel. That there are words that are said by Jeroboam, uh, who was the leader of the northern tribes of Israel, when they asked King Rehoboam, who was the son of Solomon, and who had insisted on per- perpetuating the oppression of the northern tribes that his father had started. And so these no- these northern tribes came and said, please release our oppression. And Rehoboam says, no, go away. And so Jeroboam says, all right, we'll go away. And 10 tribes of Israel formed a separate kingdom altogether. They, 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 they abscond, as it were, from Judah and create this northern kingdom of Israel. And then uh, Jeroboam, who has started out like a kind of Moses figure, you know, leading the people out of oppression, suddenly becomes an Aaron figure uh, leading the people into idolatry because he sets up a golden calf at the north and the south of his kingdom and tells his people, you don't need to go to Jerusalem to the temple anymore. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. So it becomes a manufactured state religion. Uh, he's using the name of God and the uh, apparent worship of God in these two sites really for the purpose of nationalism, for, for a kind of patriotic survival of his own state. Uh, and again, he's not the first or the last to blend together uh, the faith in the so-called living God with a kind of uh, excessive nationalism which which identifies God with the state and makes God serve the purposes of the state. That's another form of idolatry which uh, hasn't gone away ever since. Um, so that's that's the meaning of the title of the book, Here Are Your Gods. It's, it's suggesting that as the people of God, as Christian believers, we very easily fall into the same kind of trap that the Israelites of the Old Testament did which was that somehow they wanted to preserve the worship of the God they thought they knew, Yahweh, the God of Israel, and yet they either created gods of their own to lead them, or indeed they succumbed to the temptations of a kind of national idolatry and co-opted Yahweh, the God of Israel, to serve uh, the state. And, and I think those kinds of idolatry are very much still with us. Well, I think they are very much still with us, and I think that was what was really helpful to me about this book um, because you identified, I mean, numerous times, and I just made several references, the Second Kings 19, you know, things that are fashioned by human hands, and Psalm 115, you know, things that are made by human hands, those who make them become like them. And I think as you're now talking about um, national security defense of the state and other things like that. What what would you say? I mean, you've sprinkled them throughout your book, but I'd love for you to talk to them a little bit. What are the kinds of things that we see the Old Testament speaking about that um, function, I guess maybe the functional idolatry, the way, the way that bowing down to these images and serving them when the Lord rebukes his people, what is he actually rebuking them for? What are some of those specific idols? Well, the, the point I'd want to make here is, of course, that we, we sometimes think of idols as other people's gods, you know, uh, gods of other religions. You know, people think of, say, a country like India, you know, where you've got um, hundreds of different Hindu gods and you see their statues and they're sort of all golden and colored and everything else. And so we, we tend to think of idols in that sense as statues of the gods. Well, when when the Bible talks about the idols being the work of human hands, it's not just talking about those statues. I mean, everybody knew they were the work of human hands. And in fact, they boasted about that. The, the, uh, the worshippers of them were very proud of the fact that they had made such wonderful statues and idols and everything. No, the point is that even, in a sense, the gods themselves, in, in what we might call a more spiritual sense, are the manufacture of human imagination. They are human constructs. Uh, they are, in some cases, ideologies to which we give total allegiance. That may be a political ideology. Uh, it may be a, a health fad. Uh, it, it may be the pursuit of some objective which is, becomes obsessive, which could be health or wealth or beauty or, in some cases, sex or consumerism or whatever it may be, in which we are led to, to believe that in this we will find our happiness. This is what life is all about. This is what will give you real human fulfillment and joy and satisfaction if you will only follow this particular advert or this particular way of life uh, then somehow everything will be be wonderful and that is that is a kind of conceptual ideological idol 
which easily captures our imagination and then becomes obsessive. And of course, people are then prepared to pay all kinds of price, all kinds of costs um, for that idol, uh, because that's what idols do. They demand sacrifices. Um, and we make those sacrifices, and we pay those costs, and in the end, the idols fail us because we we, we, we don't get the satisfaction we, we want, um, and we don't get the political arrangements that we want, and we are let down. Well, that's what false gods do. So my book is trying to, in a sense, penetrate a bit underneath this idea that idols are just other people's problems in some other part of the world, and to recognize the extent to which our in a sense, are buying into false gods, false ideologies, false idols in our own culture, including Western culture, of course, uh, is just as much a problem, and that it's a problem in the church. You see, one of the things that um, strikes me about the Old Testament is that the the bulk of the messages of the prophets were delivered to Israel, not to the foreign nations. Of course, you do get oracles against the nations, as they're called. Uh, in the, All the major prophets have that, and some of the minor prophets too. Um, and yes, Israel knew that the other nations worshipped other gods, in a sense. And, you know, they 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 sometimes mock them for that. Uh, but but the real issue is not that other nations worship their gods. Of course they do. That's That's just a fact. But when Israel, who is supposed to know the one true living God, Yahweh, their creator and redeemer, who's brought them out of Egypt and who is the creator of the ends of the earth, and they take this one living God and swap him for idols that have no power and no ability to deliver what, what God does, then that's that's appalling, says Jeremiah. It's, it's monstrous. It's unnatural. Uh, and I would say the same is true today, that, it, it, you know, it's not surprising that the people in the world around us who are not believers, um, who are, well, like the rest of us, sinners, but, but sinners without the grace of God, that they go after all these things. As Jesus says, those are the things that the pagans run after because to some degree they're deluded, they don't know any better. But when the church, the people of God, who know the living God and know that Jesus is Lord and claim that to be so, then we also um, defend these false gods and go after them uh, the, the gods of our culture are no different from the surrounding people in terms of our consumerism or our uh, sexual habits um, or our you know worship of violence and ways of doing things which are so contrary to the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is where the real challenge comes. That's where the prophetic word is needed to tell the Christian church how the idols have penetrated and, and infected our lives rather than just shouting at society outside. Yeah. Well, I remember that part in your book where you make a really powerful distinction. You look at the way Paul in the New Testament speaks about idolatry in the book of Romans written to a church versus the way Paul speaks about idolatry and to those caught up in idolatry in the book of Acts. And in Romans, he's very harsh and speaks of it as wrath, speaks of it as judgment. But in the book of Acts, he oftentimes speaks as it to as ignorance because he's speaking to those who don't yet know know Christ. Chris, Chris, that was a just a powerful reminder. I mean, it almost makes you stop and scratch your head and think, oh goodness, wait a second. Yeah, that's right. It's almost always the Lord speaking directly to his covenant people about their failings or their responsibilities, not for his people to stand over and point out the sins of every of everybody else. Um, yeah, yeah. Thank you. I mean, the, the 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 what struck me, what led to that thinking was actually just reading about Paul in Ephesus uh, in Acts nineteen and twenty. Uh, sorry, eighteen, nineteen, twenty. It was very interesting because clearly Paul was teaching the truth. I mean, he, he they, they say this man is saying that uh, these gods of silver and gold are not gods. So he was he was proclaiming the biblical truth about God. But it's interesting that the secular authorities, if one could call them that, the clerk of the city, uh, defends Paul and his colleagues and say they have neither robbed our temples nor defamed our goddess. In other words, they haven't gone out into the public arena, you know, bad mouthing Diana and and uh, you know Artemis of the Ephesians. They aren't out there offending everybody, even though they were speaking the truth. 
Whereas clearly, when Paul writes to the Romans in Romans 1, he's speaking to Christian believers and warning them in no uncertain terms about the dangers of idolatry uh, in, in, in human life. So, yeah, that's, yeah there's a, there is a, a difference between the evangelistic context and the pastoral context uh, in terms of when one speaks about idols. And I just noticed that. Um, I don't think there's any contradiction. I'm not suggesting that, you know, Paul was muting his message or anything, but simply that he was, as it were, uh, aware of who he was talking to and the purpose of why he was speaking or writing uh, between these different contexts in relation to idolatry. Yeah, well, I agree. I don't think he was, you know, weakening his message or anything like that. I do think he was focused on who he was speaking to. And I, I don't have a pulse per se on the whole church. Um, you know, certainly not internationally. I wouldn't even argue I have a pulse on just the American church. But the pulse I do have almost does that in reverse. Um, so some postures within the church want to point fingers outward stronger than they're willing to look inward. Um, do you see anything similar to that or is that just me? No, I don't think it's just you, Joshua. I, I think that's very right. Um, and and it's, it is biblical. I mean, you know, Jesus, you know, made that point, didn't he? He says, you know, there's no point in looking at the, uh, the speck of dust in, in somebody else's eye when there's a big log in your own. And we are just habitually, since the Garden of Eden, really, very good at, at blaming others for the mess we're in rather than accepting responsibility. And certainly that's, that can be true of the church. So that's, I mean, that's also one of the reasons why, I mean, just almost changing the subject completely, but in the Lausanne movement at the uh, Cape Town um, uh, convention that was held in 2010. It's now exactly 10 years. It's this week, uh, the 10th anniversary of the uh, the third Lausanne Congress on World Evangelization in Cape Town. That I and with the approval of the uh, leadership of Lausanne made a, a presentation, which I was effectively saying, look, it's all very well for us as a whole gathering of sort of 4,000 evangelical men and women from all around the world. Uh, to celebrate what God is doing in mission in, in the unreached parts of the world and, and, and among people of other faiths and everything else. Uh, but we cannot make that a kind of triumphalistic celebration as if we were somehow wonderful. We need to identify the fact that even as evangelical believers, there's all kinds of deformities and ugliness and wrong practice and, um, and idolatry among us. We are also called to reformation and repentance uh, and, and that was a, a message that seemed to resonate with quite a lot of people, that we, we need to look to our own house. Uh, and I would say, particularly of those of us who are evangelicals, that, that, that even that word, sadly, uh, is becoming you know rather besmirched um, around the world because of what is sometimes now associated with it, um, which, quite frankly, in some cases, is a kind of idolatry. Yeah, I agree and have been doing a lot of reading myself and just as I keep studying and looking at a, a political scenes and things of that sort and which type of idolatries, right, and, and gods um, have captured the hearts of evangelicals. And I think that's that's a lot of the concern that I see that resonated with me as I read, as I read your book. Um, I did want to ask you if you could speak for just a minute. You you kind of wove, I thought, um, beautifully through the book, this understanding of how God's wrath oftentimes works in conjunction with idolatry. And it's not necessarily a, a one-sided, you know, God's just vengefully angry because his people betrayed him, but, but sort of how the Old Testament kind of unfolds the way God's wrath comes in response to people's idolatry. Could you talk about that for just a minute? Yeah, uh, both in the Old Testament and also, I think, in Romans 1. Um, I mean, in the Old Testament, we, we sometimes, you know, home in on God's judgment. You know, he, he, he smashes into his people in wrath and judgment, and he throws them into exile and so on in 587, with the destruction of Jerusalem and the fall of the temple and all. But let's remember that that was after 500 years uh, of God's patience in which God warns the people again and again and again, look, if you go down this road, um, and there were moments of, of repentance and reformation, you know, under some godly kings like Hezekiah, like Josiah and so on, but on the whole, generation after generation, the people refused to listen to the prophets and, and went the way of idolatry, which included 
a kind of political idolatry of trusting in their armies and their you know their weaponry, building that up, making alliances with uh, pagan nations, um, anything but trusting in God, and and in the end, God is saying Look, that folly is going to lead to catastrophe, a catastrophe which at one level will be simply the outworking of your own folly. You know, this evil that you're doing will simply bounce back and hit you in the face. Um, God, one might say, didn't have to, quote, do anything. I mean, once the Israelites rebelled against Babylon and again and again, Nebuchadnezzar had enough and he comes and smashes into pieces. But in that human response, that historical level uh, that was happening, God says, this is the hand of God. This is what God is permitting to happen because of human sin and folly. And it seems to me then when you come to, to Romans 1, what Paul discerns there is that when human beings give themselves up to idolatry and willfully choose to exchange the living God for all kinds of other idolatrous ways and practices, then, uh, and he says this three times, in the end, God effectively says, well, look, guys, if that's the way you want it, that's the way you can have it. So here's what it looks like when human society goes the way of the false gods. You will end up with social dissolution, with violence, with interfamily um, destructiveness, uh, with all the evils of greed and covetousness and hatred and division. Uh, and those are not so much the sins that God is judging, although obviously they are sins and God does judge them, but they are, in a sense, the outworking of the fundamental sin of idolatry, that when we turn our backs on our backs on God, the living God, uh, who whose whole purpose is for our good and for our blessing, when we turn our backs on Him, then we, as it were, we fall into the kind of social breakdown, dissolution, and implosion uh, that we're seeing. Uh, it's in a sense God's judgment works itself out in the processes of the falls the, the 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 fall of human society and i think that's what the old testament showed again and again as empires come and go they rise they collapse they fall and as we see in in human empires even in the millennia since christ you know, empires rise and fall they do their stuff they become arrogant they become violent and then in the end they collapse um, and my own feeling is and i'm not claiming to be a prophet but my, my feeling is that that is really where we're at in terms of, of Western civilization, that after pretty well 500 years of European uh, domination, and by that I mean the European peoples, not just Europe as a continent, but European peoples in the Western world, including, of course, the United States, Canada, Australia, sort of the Western world um, has reached, in a sense, the the height of its possibilities and also the depth of its de degradation and idolatry. And I think God is beginning to say enough is enough. Yeah. Well, and you spoke pretty plainly about that toward the, the latter third of the book, just com combining again with, um, you know, pride, greed, aggression. Um, these are the kinds of things that the nations embody. And when one nation's quote unquote gods can defeat another nation, that just means that their military is bigger and stronger. And, you know, you, you just, you, you shared enough of these kinds of terms that really they're, they're things, you know, like patriotism or the economy or national security or militaristic strength or these kinds of things that you can't really touch, you know, that that's, it's not something you can be like, that's it. You know, it's just, it's this ideology, like you said. And so, so does that relate um, at all with how the New Testament, the New Testament speaks about gods and idols, but it also speaks about principalities and powers. So uh, this is just a question I have after reading your book, but what what is your understanding of the relationship between the gods or the idols for the gods and the and the principalities? Or is there a like a connection there between them? Yes, I think there is, um, because uh, I what I think the Bible as a whole shows us is that, yes, at one level, the gods are human constructs. That is, they are these are things that we have created in our imagination, that we exalt, that we you know bow down to and give allegiance to. But also there is the reality of spiritual evil. You know, there is Satan and the hosts of demons. And there is a sense in which the, the pursuit of idolatry also exposes us uh, to the demonic. 
Um, and so therefore the, the, the connection is that, um, as Paul puts it, that we wrestle not just with flesh and blood. When, when we're dealing with um, the opposition to the gospel uh, and persecution and such like, we're not just dealing with magistrates and Roman emperors and you know the government. We are dealing with spiritual powers and forces which are at one level operating in, in a spiritual realm, but are also manifesting themselves through those political structures. So it's 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 a, a false dichotomy to suggest that you know the principalities and principalities and powers are either demons and and um, idols and spiritual forces or they are political structures. I'm convinced that they are both, uh, that uh, human political structures um, are human and we choose them and we can overthrow them, we can vote against them. They, they are as fallen and, as, and, and have as much potential for good and evil as any human structure because we're all made in the image of God. So, you know, governments are there by, by God's authority. God wants there to be governments. He wants there to be justice. So the human political world is a human world of human choices and ethical decisions. But at the same time, it is a world that is very easily infected by the power of, of spiritual forces, which somehow seem to be often greater than the sum of all the parts. In other words, stuff happens that, that seems to be beyond any merely human decision-making, uh, but has destructive power, um, which uh, you know blinds people, which in, it makes, in a sense, almost makes people do things that a later generation will gasp at and say, "How could they ever have thought such things? How could they ever have done such things?" And we have to say, "Well, because they're human beings. Yes, they made moral choices, but there's also an element of the satanic and the demonic uh, in that reality." I think that's where a book like Daniel is, and also Revelation, of course. But Daniel are so helpful. Because Daniel, he wasn't even really a prophet. He was just a, a civil servant. You know, he was he was an administrator. But he had the capacity both for the spiritual discernment that behind the powers that he worked for, like um, the Babylonian Empire and then the Persian Empire, there were beasts of the sea. There were demonic powers that were at work um, in, in that. And yet, at the same time, that didn't send him off to sort of start up some end times ministry and call everybody, you know, to flee to the mountains. He says, the next day, I went back about the king's business. He went about his work. He did his job. He was engaged in the political sphere, but he was engaged in politics with his eyes wide open to the spiritual dimension of what he was up against. Um, and, and so he had, you know, he had both realities, the human and the spiritual. And I think we need to have something of the same discernment and the same wisdom in our own political thinking as Christians. Yeah, well, that was that was really well said. I appreciate that answer. That that's consistent with everything I've under I've come to understand about the same thing. Um, and I guess to sort of like come to the next logical step, then as you wrestle through the human and the spiritual components to our political decisions, um, I did want to bring this up, thinking I, I might appreciate somebody giving me the chance to ask something like this, but I, I went on Amazon and was looking at your book and, and looking at some reviews and I, and I came across several, like a, a one or two, um, two star reviews. And one of them said, Oh goodness, this is just some leftist, you know, perspective on, you know, criticizing Trump and, and the, the, you know, the, the political right, if you will. And I thought to myself, that's not what I picked up from this book, although you certainly didn't shy away from talking about a breakdown of truth in the public square and uh, grasping for power and boasting about sexual exploits and things that Israel's kings were warned not to do, which seemingly in the public sphere today, we're getting more comfortable with. But I wanted to give you the chance to just respond to something like that. How would you respond to that or any other critique that your book is lopsided in in a political angle um toward the toward the left yeah um, what well, would you say to that <laughs> yeah that doesn't surprise me i actually haven't gone on amazon to read those reviews i, I don't often read reviews of my own stuff well sorry I, for you know ruining no, no, that for no, you, no, so. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't surprise me i would i would expected that um all i would try to say is that yes um 
I suppose that from a political point of view, my own personal political stance would be somewhat more to the left of centre than to the right. Um, that I think is any Christian's you know, responsibility and, and privilege and prerogative to, you know, to think through their politics uh, and to decide where they feel um, there is, a, in any sense, some kind of a, a greater alignment with what one reads in Scripture in terms of God's concern for society, God's political uh, advocacy for you know, the poor and the oppressed and the suffering and the needy and the refugee and the foreigner and so on. Um, and so if those are the concerns of people who tend to be categorized on the left, then you know, I'm with them. But um, at the same time, you know, the, here in Britain, and I'm talking now from obviously from a UK point of view, because if, if anybody discerns the accent, um, my, my own background is from Northern Ireland, um, but I, I live in London. Um, but in the UK uh, situation, of course, our politics is not quite so polarized as in the US. Uh, and I have Christian friends who are in politics on all three political parties uh, that we have here, including the, the Tory Conservative, more right-wing party, and the more left. And I respect their views, and I respect the, the philosophy that they have and the, and the way they try to think through political choices in the light of their Christian faith. Because let's remember that all politics is riddled with sin and fallenness and therefore also of dealing sometimes with the lesser of evils uh, or or the least possible harmful policy to have. There's never any easy right or wrong choice, usually, in, in political decisions. And so one has to weigh these things up. In my book, I... I tried not, I think, to let it be just a, a political tirade. In fact, I, I didn't particularly name some of the people I was talking about uh, or thinking about. I was trying to deal more at the level of principle. And you put your finger on one of those principles very firmly because it really is worrying to me, um, this war on truth that has, uh, seems to have taken over um, our politics. And, and you know, obviously you're aware of that in the States, but here in Britain too, uh, the scale of uh, easy lying uh, and lying that never seems to have any consequences, even when it's exposed, uh, in which people are able simply to clearly and obviously tell untruths, which are then quickly challenged, and say, well, they sort of shrug and say, oh, well, never mind. It's, it's only him. It doesn't really matter. That's just the way he is. Well, it, it does matter. It matters greatly uh, because God is the God of truth. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the ninth commandment, you know, do not bear false witness is, is a hugely important one. God is concerned not just to have good laws, because God gave his people good laws, but also to have good judicial process, that the, the whole process of, of, of law and justice depends upon people being prepared to speak the truth and to face the consequences if they don't speak the truth. And in the Old Testament, that was pretty severe. You know, perjury could become a capital offence in the Old Testament if, if your false testimony uh, could have led to somebody being executed. So God is passionately concerned for truth in public life. And the extent to which that is now being trashed and despised um, to the point of being dissolved altogether is genuinely worrying. Uh, and I think it is one of the signs uh, of a society which is now into the sort of Romans 1 situation you know the, the the lies that are just there eventually begin to become reality for the for the society and god gives us up and says well if that's the way you go that's the way you go so yeah i i would respond to criticism like that by saying no i wasn't just trying to be you know a trendy lefty i do genuinely try to educate my conscience by what i read in scripture and if I were to talk to people who would criticize like that, I would say, well, let's go back to the Bible. Uh, let's read the law and the prophets and Jesus and James and the apostles uh, and see what they have to say about social life and about some of the priorities that we should have as a society and in government uh, and in the church. Yeah, well, thank thank you so much for that answer. That's, um, that is excellent. And, and I think you made a comment in the book about the fact that we need to be people who know what the Bible says. And we're kind of in an age right now of some biblical illiteracy. Um, and so I, I, I think, I think, I think I can say, as I said at the beginning, I think you 
you are the the one person more than anyone, and I, I read a lot, but you're the one more than anyone who has given me a just a deep love and a passion for understanding the Old Testament. And for that, I'm immensely grateful. Um, one last question, if I could, just to sort of tie in maybe other resources that you've written before. But um, I had a good friend say, oh, you're going to talk with Chris Wright. Just ask him this. And I'd love to hear sort of just some closing thoughts that you have. For the general person then, if there's someone reading and they say, I, I want to understand more, but yeah, I, the Old Testament. I mean, that's just, that's that's difficult. I don't really know where to start. I don't really know how to how to read it. The question is, what categories do we need to understand in order to faithfully read such a diverse body of texts? Um, things like, you know, you do a lot of work on the land and and people, blessing, kingdom, you know, there's just so many beautiful themes interweaving, but it can feel like a lot. What would be just a few good principles for interpreting Old Testament that you would love to empower some just regular churchgoers with? Yeah, thank you. That's a very tough question, a very big one. Um, I mean, I think I would probably uh, encourage people to see not just the Old Testament, but the whole Bible as fundamentally the story of God from creation to new creation through the fall and then the promise to Abraham that through his people, the people of Israel, God will bring blessing to all nations on earth. That's the mission of God. That's, that's, that's the driving agenda of the whole story is how will this God who created this universe and then watched us mess it up with our sin and rebellion, how will this God bring about the redemption of creation and the redemption of human beings. And it begins back in the Old Testament. It begins with, with Abraham. And, and then we need to see the whole of the Old Testament story as, in a sense, the, the slow progressing outworking of that plan and purpose of God until ultimately, of course, it comes to its climax in the incarnation of Jesus of Nazareth. God becomes flesh. Uh, and then you have the cent centrality of the gospel uh, of the life and teaching and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, at the very heart of the gospel. And then the ongoing story of the mission of the church, uh, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the uh, church going out to all nations. Um, that's the part of the story, of course, that we're still in because we are in that part of the Bible. We are in the Bible. We, we are somewhere in between the resurrection of Christ and the return of Christ. And then the Bible points us, of course, to the final judgment when God will put all things right and uh, deal with all wrong and evil and evildoers and put all things right. And then the new creation when he will make all things new and we will dwell, or God rather, will dwell with us in the new heavens and the new earth. So my, my biggest hint or help to anybody trying to get hold of the Bible as a whole is see it as a story as a whole and, and see where every part fits into that story. That's, that's one reason why I, I wrote uh, the book, um, The Old Testament in Seven Sentences, uh, which was recently published by um, IVP. It's called A Brief Introduction to a Vast Topic. <laughs> and it was an attempt to try to help people see their way through the Old Testament from creation uh, right through, of course, towards the Lord Jesus Christ, to the gospel that comes with Christ. Um, so that's another one that might help. Or the, the book Knowing God, Knowing God Through the Old Testament, uh, which looks at um, knowing Jesus through the Old Testament, knowing God the Father and knowing the Holy Spirit through the Old Testament. Again, published by IVP. So I think that's probably enough self-advertising for one conversation. <laughs> well, no, and I appreciate it. And self-advertising is great because I've read, I think, most of those. I haven't read the seven sentences one. I'll have to check that out. It's, it's a um, short one. You'll, you'll find it quite easy. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it would be great because I love some some simpler resources that I know I could share with church members. Um, mm. Being a, being a pastor myself, I know many of my members wouldn't read a six hundred page The Mission of God, but um, they might read a hundred fifty page. Um, mm. You know, here are your gods kind of a book. So that's good. Well, Chris, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. This has been a lot of fun, and um, I'm really up to you. Yeah, yeah, really thankful for your ministry. Thankful for just continuing to write good books. I'll definitely have to check out your Exodus commentary coming up. And um, anything else you'd like to share with us before we leave? Things are coming up for you, or uh, things we can be thinking about with you. 
Well, just to say that uh, I, although as you did say, that I work uh, for at All Souls Church now in London, I'm an honorary curate there, but uh, my main job is with the Langham Partnership. And if people want to know what that is, they can just go to the website langham.org. That's L-A-N-G-H-A-M. Uh, and that are ministries started by John Stott that are serving the churches out there in the majority world, where the majority of the world's Christians are in Africa and Asia and Latin America. Uh, and my my work is is with uh, with Langham. That's wonderful. Yeah, I'll have to try to put a link to that in the show notes of this episode as well. That'll so, be great. Wonderful. Again, thank you so much. I hope you have a fantastic weekend, and maybe we'll get in touch at another point. Good. Thank you. Then. Okay. Alrighty. Bye bye. What a great conversation that was with Chris Wright. And I'm just excited again, as I've shared before, to share this with you. I'm glad you have a chance to listen to Chris as he's looking at the Old Testament and pointing out with Israel, these aren't things that other religions do, or these aren't things that other peoples have for idols, but rather Israel's story being the way things go when people worship that which is not God. And what I love about Chris Wright is how he makes the Old Testament come to life and to remind us that our place in the story of God and his people is to take our cues from Israel and not to imagine that we are to try to repeat the life that they had because they fell into many, many difficulties and many troubles. And that's what I love so much about Chris's work is he can go deep for a long time into the culture, into the history, into the mindset of ancient Israel and then to bring it up to the surface to show how much relevance their life and their story and their faith and their lack of faith actually has in our everyday lives. And so I'm really thankful again for this conversation. Thankful that you can tune in and listen to it. Please share this episode with a friend. Um, this again does capture much of the heart of the kinds of thoughts that I have and that have been trying to present to you on this podcast. In fact, many episodes of things that I've shared have come right out of things I've read from Christopher Wright's books and his and his work. So thank you so much for tuning into this podcast. If you would um, have questions or comments and would like to send those my way, you can send me an email at unbindingthebible at gmail.com. If you would like to leave a rating or a review or subscribe to this podcast, you can do any one of those on whatever app you are choosing to listen to this on. Finding the show notes would be a place for you to even um, be a supporter of the podcast. And I have several of you who are faithfully giving me 99 cents, $4.99, $9.99 a month to support the podcast. Thank you so much for doing that. This allows me to continue to produce content for you each week by the book episodes, bonus episodes, working our way through the book of Revelation, etc. So again, I'm thankful for you tuning in. Hope you have a fantastic week. Talk to you next time.